Will you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews 4? The Bible speaks of our God in this way in Psalm 46 and verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. If God is our helper, and if, as the Bible says, if that if God is for us, who can be against us? Then we should, wouldn't you agree, be able to find help in our struggles. And yet, if folks are in trouble, many don't consider God as the source of their help. Just think of the ways that we use the word help when it's applied to folks who are in trouble. You need help. You need some serious help. Get help for crying out loud, will you? That's the kind of thing that we hear and we say. I used to listen to the sports radio station. I do that less often now because it's too depressing. Yes, for those reasons. Truth is, it's, always, it's also too vulgar as well. Just too much guy talk that takes place rather than sports talk. It's also depressing because it's ugly, because of the stories of the personal lives of the athletes. Often after telling the story of yet another athlete who's on drugs or who was prosecuted for beating his wife or whatever, the show's host will say something like, like I hope he gets the help he needs. Now you people need some serious help. And how do I know that? Because what you've heard me say over the years is true. At all times in a fallen world, you are either in a trial, you are either emerging from a trial, or, I say with my Pikevillian accent, you're fixing to go into a trial. And those difficulties, those trials, those things that try us come in all shapes and all sizes. Some of them are self-inflicted. Others of them are imposed. Often it's a combination. But they all fit in the category of trouble for which we need help. And the Bible teaches that they are all, every last one of them, designed by God to strengthen us, to mature us, to make us more like Jesus. But a very real potential problem rears its head when we go through those trials and emerge from them successfully. You say there's a potential problem with emerging from a trial successfully? There is. When we're in a trial and we receive the help of our helping God and we emerge better for it, there is a danger. We think, here's the danger, we think the same thing is going to happen next time. But see, next time may be a different trial. One that exposes a different part of your heart. One that cuts so deep that you find yourself unwilling to turn to Christ and to follow Christ because this is so beyond anything that you could have ever imagined that you're angry that he's allowed it to happen at all. This is beyond the pale. I've gone through stuff before. I've trusted you, Jesus, before, but not this time. It exposes something different about our hearts. 
You see, friends, passing a test today does not mean that you or I will pass the new test tomorrow. Each trial, and it's called a trial because it tries something, it tests something about you and me. And each new trial tests something new. So we may have done well in one set of circumstances and relied on Christ and moved forward with him only to find that new conditions expose new vulnerabilities within us. That happened to Peter, you may recall. Peter is the man who made the great confession of faith with regard to our Lord in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. And he said, thou art truly the Christ. You are the son of the living God. It was Peter who at the Last Supper declared, Lord, we will never desert you. We will never leave you. It was a few hours later that the same Peter drew his sword in the garden as Jesus was about to be arrested to defend Jesus against that arrest. But it was the same Peter who just a few hours after that found himself with a new test, new vulnerability. And this Otherwise, sometimes courageous Peter found himself embarrassed and afraid and confused. And when tried, he denied that he was a follower of Jesus. I wasn't kidding then when I said you people, and I include myself, we are people who need some serious help. As do all people. And as did the people to whom this passage that we're going to consider in Hebrews chapter 4 was first written. The truth of the matter is, these people were in circumstances that were trying them in ways that they had not been tried in the past. The fact of the matter is, these folks were on the verge of denying, turning away from the God that they professed and the Lord whom they confessed. This was a small band of Christians who were tempted to turn away and turn back because they were under serious strain. I believe that this book was written to a small group of Christians of Jewish background. And that's why it's named Hebrews. And that's why it has so many allusions to the first part of your Bible, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And they, the small group, the small band of Christians with Jewish background were being persecuted for professing Jesus as their Lord. And they were in grave danger of turning away and turning back to their old ways. They were in danger of failing God's test. And all of this despite the fact that they had apparently stood tall at other times. Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 32 says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. It stood well in the past. They were in danger of falling in the present. And so the book of Hebrews gives five warning passages. We've already considered two of those. Five warning passages, stern warnings about the possibility of falling away. The hardship that they were undergoing now, the specific nature of which we're not told, was apparently something new, and it exposed new vulnerabilities to them. And so the question was, to what would they turn? 
to whom would they turn? The question for you and me is, because we live in this fallen world, we are in a trial, emerged from a trial, going into a trial, all designed to try something new about you and about me. The question for us is then, to what will we turn? To whom will we turn? To what will you turn? A bottle? A pill? A fantasy? To whom will you turn? The council? Of those who do not know God? The people at work who tell you how right you are? You're right. She's not doing what she's supposed to do. You should just tell her to get lost. You don't need that. To whom are you going to turn? The, the counsel of unbelievers? The comfort of an illicit affair? To what will you turn? To whom will you turn? Dear friend, I declare to you from the word of God, there is no one or no thing that compares to Jesus. No. On one occasion, Jesus' teaching was so intense, so difficult for his first followers, that the Bible says some of those first professing followers turned away from him. Here's what the Bible says in John 6. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus said, you do not want to leave too, do you? He asked to the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And it's this one who has the words of eternal life. To whom? You and I must turn in times of trouble. The inevitable times of trouble. And because he has the words of life, that is why we saw last week together the words of verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus has the words of life. The word of God is living and active. And it's available to you. And the God of that word is available to you for your help in trouble. I appreciate our ensemble and the songs that they selected for us. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith. Where? In his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? And so we read in verse 16 of Hebrews 4. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Dear friend, we can receive help from Jesus in any situation. Let's go to him briefly 
And then let's look at this passage together. Let's bow. Jesus, we come before you. And we do so confessing the truth about who you are and what you have done. Lord God, we believe that you have come in the flesh to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That the God-man Jesus has come to earth and he lived an absolutely perfect life of righteousness. He died a death on our behalf to pay for our sins. And as he walked the dusty roads of Palestine, he underwent suffering. As he walked the road to the cross of Calvary, he suffered in ways unimaginable. He suffered for me. He suffered for us. And as a result, as a result, there is no one who can help us. There is no one who understands like you. And so, Lord, we come to you for help in our trouble. And we ask you to help us as we look at this tool, this marvelous tool, the word of God that you have given to us. Help us, Lord, to see in it the reasons that there's no one like Jesus. No one or no thing can compare to him. Help us to leave this place today resolved to walk with Jesus every moment of every day, every step of the way, no matter the path that he allows to come into our lives, knowing that he can and will take us through it for our good and his glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have an outline for you inserted in your program. And in it we say that you can trust Jesus in any and every situation. You can turn to Jesus for help because of his position. Now, what is his position? Well, need a little bit of background quickly to this passage beginning in verse 14 that goes back to the book of Acts in your Bible. The very first chapter of the book of Acts opens with Jesus' closing words to his followers and then Jesus ascending into heaven. And then it tells us what those first followers of Jesus did with his instructions, the acts of the apostles, their actions. Here's how it, what it says in verse 10 of Acts chapter 1. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Well, where was he going? Notice verse 14 of Hebrews 4. We have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. You see, we should turn to Jesus for help, friends. And not other things, and not other people. Why? Because of Jesus' position. Jesus has gone through the heavens, the writer of Hebrews says. Acts chapter 1 tells us that his first followers watched intently as he left. And where did he go? Well, he went to the highest heaven. The Bible calls it the third heaven. The very throne room of God. Did you know the Bible speaks of three heavens? The Bible speaks of the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul, who wrote that section, says, I, Paul, was caught up to the, what he calls the third heaven. Back on July 5th, 
We had a message on heaven. Some of you were here for that. If you were not, we have the recording on our website. And I proved, I think, that there are three ways the Bible talks about heaven. And the highest heaven, the third heaven, is the dwelling place of God. And there is the atmospheric heaven the Bible talks about. It's the air and the rain and the clouds. And there's the planetary heaven, what we commonly call the universe or outer space. And then there is the divine heaven, the place where God dwells. And Jesus, as our high priest, verse 14 says, has gone through the heavens. And so in contrast to every other priest who has gone before Jesus or any would-be priest who would come after Jesus, there is no one that compares to him, partly because he's gone through the heavens and no one else has. Bear with me as I give you some contrast between the ministry of Jesus and those priests who had gone before him described in the first part of your Bible. Some of you know that God's people, the nation Israel, would have a high priest. And the high priest was allowed to go one time per year into an inner sanctuary in the temple of God called the Holy of Holies. And when he would do that, he would have to go through three places. He would have to go through the outer court. And he would carry the blood of an animal to sprinkle on the mercy seat of God for the sins of the people. And in doing so, he would carry that blood through first the outer court. And then he would go through a second place called the holy place. And then he would bring that blood into this third entrance called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in contrast to going in once a year, Jesus, our great high priest, once only, offered sacrifice for our sins himself, and he passed through the heavens, and he passed through the first heaven, and the second heaven, and he entered the very throne room of God into the third heaven. And he is now there, interceding for us, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Friends, there is no one or no thing like Jesus. He's our great high priest. And he entered in the very throne room of God by going through the heavens. And so the author of Hebrews is simply pointing out to these Jewish Christians, don't turn back. Don't turn to anyone or anything because there is no one or no thing like Jesus. You can imagine what some of them would have been saying. It wasn't so bad under the old system. As a matter of fact, since I've come to Jesus, it's actually gotten worse. Some of you could testify to that. My family doesn't like me anymore because I'm a Jesus freak. The people who used to hang around with me at the places we used to go, I don't do anymore. They don't like me anymore. It's gotten harder since I've come to Jesus. And Jesus, I've tried to... To walk with you, and I've tried to be faithful to you, and now you've laid this on me. You've laid this on us. It's too much for me to bear. It was better before. That's what they were saying. And that's what some of you are saying in the midst of your trial. 
And the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is superior to all who have come before and all who come after. There is simply no contest between the Levitical, the Levitical priest of the first part of your Bible. There's no contest between the Levitical system and what's provided to us in Christ. And that's why verse 14 says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Literally, let us hold firmly to the confession. What we say we believe about Jesus, even in the midst of our difficulty. And where is that confession? It's in chapter 3 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Our profession is this, that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our profession. That's what we claim to believe. And in the midst of your difficulty, you hold firm to the hand of Jesus, who is your apostle, the sent one, and your high priest like no other. I just make one other point about verse 14. We'll move on. But I want you to notice that it is our profession. It is the faith that we profess in verse 14. You see, it's not just your private faith. It's our faith as believers. And when you're in trouble, one of the things you will be tempted to do is draw within yourself. Become individualistic. Segregate yourself from the rest of the body of Christ. But hear this, friends. We are all in this mess together. And we all profess Jesus together. And we all need one another as a gracious tool given to us by our God to help us in our time of need. We can turn to Jesus for help because of his unique position. Here's a second reason we can turn to Jesus. Verse 15, because of his experience. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. There is the fact of Jesus, what I'll call empathy. If you were with us several weeks ago in chapter 2, there was a similar passage that talked about Jesus identifying with our suffering and our struggles. And I made the point then that there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy says I understand, but I've never gone through it. I can empathize when I've gone through it. And Jesus has been tried in every way like we have. There is the fact of Jesus' ability to empathize. And that's in contrast to the views that many had at the time that the book of Hebrews was written 2,000 years ago. There were philosophical schools that had a view of God that said he was unfeeling. He could not sympathize, certainly not empathize with our struggles. And so the Stoics had something called apatheia, who said that God was unable to feel. We get apathetic from it. Because if God were able to feel, then he would be controlled and thus would be less than God, said they. The Epicureans said that God existed in intermedia, that is between the worlds. He was completely detached from the goings-on in our world. The Jews improved upon that view of God a good bit. The first part of your Bible presents God as the different God, but not wholly other. He would converse with his people. He'd revealed himself to his people. There were times where he would meet with his people. 
Jesus advanced our understanding when he said we can talk to God as our, our Father. And when you pray, pray, our Father, who art in heaven. But this idea that God himself would come to earth and take a body like man and he would suffer as man is unthinkable. It's unique to Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we profess. Jesus took a body. A body like you have. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says he was made like us in every way. It was a real human body with the inherent weaknesses that go with that. Jesus had to walk as a baby before he walked as a man. Jesus had to talk as a baby before he talked as a man because he had a real body. And as a result, Jesus, who suffered in that real human body, has something called sympathetic resonance with you and with me. I'm not a musician, but my musician friends tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, Ron, but that this idea of sympathetic resonance means if you have two pianos in the same room, and you strike a note on one, that there will be a gentle resonance on that same note on that other piano, even though it's not touched. And the instrument of Jesus' body went through the suffering that we endure in a fallen world. And when that instrument on earth, my body, your body, is struck... There is an empathy, a sympathetic resonance from Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. Jesus feels it because Jesus has experienced it. Verse 15 says this, he is able to sympathize with our, our weaknesses. This word weaknesses, it's almost untranslatable. But really, the best way to think of it, I think, is just the human condition. Jesus is able to empathize because he's been there, done that, with our weaknesses, the human condition, and all of the varieties of suffering that go with it. And yet, through all of that, even though he has been tempted, the word tempted in your Bible, your New Testament, same word as tried, even though he has gone through trial. Even though he has been tried in every way just as we are, yet through all of that, without sin. Now, I'll just say something about what undoubtedly some of you are thinking quickly, and then we'll finish up. But you've got to be thinking, some of you, okay, look, I understand he went through all of that suffering. I understand that uh, he did that for me, but it couldn't have been as bad as it is for me because he was God. And it says right there he was without sin. So it was clear he was never going to give in. It couldn't have been so bad for him. Actually, that makes it worse. Because you see, when you give in, the pressure stops. Jesus never gave in. The pressure was intense, and at all times, Jesus was being tried. Think of it a few ways. Think of it as a dam that holds the pressure of water back. The pressure is intense until the dam breaks and then the pressure is released your dam breaks fairly often and fairly quickly as does mine jesus never did 
Or think of it this way. You and I go into battle together. Side by side, we go into battle. But the first time we see somebody with armament a few feet away from us, I pass out. You go on. You're slaying people. You're defending the truth. You're defending others. I come to. I get back out there. I see you going at it. Here comes another person. I pass out again. I do this about five or six times. When it's all over and we've won the battle, I take credit for battling with you side by side. But the truth of the matter is, who bore the battle most intensely? The one who never gave in. And that's Jesus. Tempted, tried in every way just as we are, and yet without sin. So we can go to Jesus because of his position and because of his experience. And then thirdly, in verse 16, we can go to Jesus with our trouble because of his generosity. Let us then, because of all of that, approach the throne of grace where Jesus is and no other high priest has ever been. The third heaven where God dwells, the very throne room of God. Let us approach there with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's where Jesus is. If Jesus invites you and me to come anytime, anywhere, with absolute confidence. Bold assurance is the idea. It was used, this word translated confidence, was used in classical Greek to refer to the free exchange of talk. It's not irreverent, but it's saying you can come and you can talk to this Jesus who's gone through these things on your behalf and now is in the throne room of God and delights to hear from his people and delights to respond because it's the throne room, not just the throne room, but the throne room, verse 16, of grace. And if we do, we receive mercy and we find grace. Now hear this. That help is available to you. But if you're going to avail yourself of that help, as you go down the path that God has marked out for you, you must hold the hand of Jesus all the way. You let go of Jesus' hand. You let go of your attachment to the only one who can ultimately help us. You let go of that hand. And friends, then it's hopeless indeed. But I hold on to Jesus. I don't know how he's going to help. I don't know how he's going to act. I don't know what he's going to do. But I know, I know that he is able and I know that he will give me mercy and grace in his time. And at just the right time. This past week, my wife and I were discussing an issue that had come up for us. Just a personal household issue. What are we going to do? I don't know. Hold on to Jesus. Ask Jesus. Jesus, I don't know what you're going to do. Later that day, some circumstances come up. I'm not making this up. And I'm able to call Kim and say, hey, guess what happened? It's all good. It's all covered. We don't know what Jesus is going to do. But you hold his hand. And he promises you will receive mercy and find grace to help us. Not in our timing. 
but in the time of our greatest need. And he knows that like no other. And that's why the Bible says this of our God. He gives us more grace. A generous, lavish God lavishes his grace upon those who hold on to Jesus and the path that he marks out for them. Friends, you can go to Jesus with any difficulty of life, but you have to have your hand clasped in his. You have to know this Jesus. And I end this way, inviting you to come to Jesus. I invite you to enter into a relationship with our high priest, whom we confess. And how do you do that? He invites you to come. If you recognize you need his help by virtue of you being a sinner. That sin manifests itself in so many ways in our lives. It manifests itself in one way, in our independence in our futile thinking that we can handle it on our own, that we don't need God. We have violated God's holy standard. He has an absolutely holy, righteous standard. All of us have violated it in various ways. So all have sinned and fall short of the character, the glory of God. Realize you're a sinner. Recognize this. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin. Repent. Say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to go your way, not my way. And receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. And as we do, you have to pray from your heart to God. No magic formula. It's a sample prayer. Many of us are going to be praying, thanking Jesus for his sustaining grace in our lives. Through the various things that he allows us to go through. We're going to be repenting of our lack of faith. Perhaps even this week through some of the things we've gone through. But I would encourage you, friend, if you've never come to Jesus, to pray from your heart a prayer like this that acknowledges, I have sinned. I cannot pay for my own sin. Jesus has paid it all on the cross. I ask you to forgive me. I give you my life. I'm going to follow you and go your way and not my way. And he promises that you will then come into his family and you will have access to that throne room where he resides. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the words of this marvelous passage, reminding us of who our Lord Jesus is and what our Lord Jesus has done and what our Lord Jesus is doing. Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my faithlessness so many times when I forget who I have available to me to help me in my time of need, whatever the situation. I thank you, our God, that you're a God who empathizes with the plight, the weaknesses of your people. But Lord, we must hold the hand of the one who guides us through paths that are unknown to us, but fully known to you. And so, Lord, I pray that there's resolve on the part of your people to do that anew today and this week. In whatever the dark circumstance, dark because we can't see the end of it, dark because it may be deep and difficult, Whatever the circumstance, help us to remember you care and you can and you will. And you will produce what you design in us and through us if we but hold on to our high priest and apostle, the Lord Jesus. I pray for anyone here who has never entered into relationship with this one, the one who can bring, give help for our sin and our severed relationship with the God who made us by virtue of his death on the cross for us. I pray that they're coming to you in faith right now, committing their lives to you. 
and that this will be the first step of a new life for them to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.